This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. Lord, we thank you for this time that you have given us this weekend. We thank you for the folks who have been here all weekend. We thank you for the folks who have come up this morning to join us. We ask that you would come in your Holy Spirit and speak your words to us, that we could gaze on you, that we could love you, that we could receive you, that we could listen to you. Teach us, Lord, to pray. We ask in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay, good morning. All right, so this morning's passage, um, we find Jesus alone praying. And we see this rhythm, by the way, throughout Luke. I mentioned this to some folks in my uh, silent prayer seminar yesterday, or workshop yesterday. And a lot, a lot of the things I say, by the way, are, are things that you might have heard already this weekend. I planned this before I came this weekend. Um, and, uh, but many of the same things have been said, un, unplanned by us. So listen up to those parts. They will be on the test. So, um, so we find Jesus alone praying, and we see this, this rhythm of times of going to the crowd, times of intense public ministry, and then times of withdrawals. Throughout Luke, Jesus is with the crowd, and then he withdraws into prayer. And really, this retreat is... Um, it, some of you may feel like, I'm ready to withdraw from the crowd. Uh, <laughs> But we withdrew, we came, we went on this trip away from our lives, in part to learn to pray together. And we need to sort of mimic this rhythm that we see in Jesus and Luke in our, in our own life, of times where we engage and times where we withdraw into prayer. And those of you who have a really hard time going to the crowd and would much rather stay in a place of withdrawal, God might be calling you to the crowd. And those who love the crowd, and, and really have a hard time withdrawing into silence and prayer. This might be your call this weekend to put rhythms of your life of, of times of real intentional withdrawing into prayer. Um, so he's withdrawn, away from the noise, away from the crowd. If it was now, he would withdraw from Twitter. It was with this withdrawal from even the digital crowd that we're called to. And uh, he's praying. And one of his disciples says, teach us to pray. And so what we're looking at this morning is a pattern, as I said with the children's talk, a pattern of prayer. And then we're going to look at the heart of prayer. So we're going to look first at the pattern of prayer and then the heart of prayer. So first I have a question. It's rhetorical. What is the point of discipleship? Think about that. What's the end, the telos of discipleship? Is it to check off religious boxes so you can feel good about being a good Christian? Like, care for your neighbor, check. Like, perfectly balanced activity and contemplation, check. Um, learn to pray, check. Got that off this weekend. No. We have to guard, even as we're learning to pray, we have to... Um, 
guard against sort of taking on prayer practices as, and to make us busy with religious activities so that we can justify ourselves to God. That is not what any of this is about this weekend. In, in Islam, as some of, many of you would know, there are five pillars of Islam that, that all um, Muslims have to take up to a sort of righteousness before God. What, I, what we are not giving you this weekend is five pillars of Christianity or five pillars of discipleship. So what's the point of all this then? What's the end of discipleship? So in John 17, one of my very favorite verses, Jesus defines eternal life. And he doesn't say that eternal life is doing lots of good stuff so you can get to heaven someday. He says this. You guys probably know this. Do you know how he defines eternal life? Knowing him. Thank you. He says, now this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That is the end of this. Not that you could earn your righteousness before God, because if you are in Christ, you are righteous. But so that you can know God as a gift, as an invitation. That is what is on offer in prayer. It is an invitation to God's self, from God. Discipleship is to live into eternity, right? What is eternal life? It's to know God. And we begin that when? When we die? No, today, now. Discipleship is to live into eternity, to actually practice eternity, what we'll be doing for all of eternity, by knowing God. And from the outset, let me say that this is by grace, and this is entirely because of the work of Jesus. But Jesus and Jesus, by his grace, in his grace, gives us this gift of prayer and teaches us here how to pray. So prayer at its roots is a way we can come to be, to know God. We are known by God and is a way to come to deeply know and to trust God. A way to attach ourselves, to jump into the arms of God. God loves us in Christ, regardless of how good or bad you are in prayer. So some of you feel like this, some perfectionists this weekend are like, I got it, I got it, I got the pattern, I got the plan, I got the doodling, I got the silence, I'm on it, I will go. Others are like, I just feel like a failure, you know? I feel like I can sort of like barely do this. And I want you to know wherever you are, the Lord is delighted in inviting you into prayer, into himself. We come to know him more, and primarily we come to drink in the love of God through prayer. But we have to learn to pray. It doesn't come always uh, spontaneously or sort of, in, it's not uh, always intuitive how to pray. Um, it's like a muscle that we exercise, and we have to continue to sort of train in that and exercise that muscle. So when the disciples ask Jesus, uh, to teach them to pray, he doesn't say, figure it out, or just kind of say whatever comes to mind, or, you know, why don't you know this by now? He teaches them a pattern of prayer. Why? Why does he teach them a pattern of prayer? Because he wants them to know God. Because he's inviting them into eternity. So, 
first thing you notice, if you were paying attention, is that this prayer we read in Luke is not exactly like the prayer that we say together. There's slight differences, and it's not exactly like the, the prayer we say together. Um, there's another Lord's Prayer that's slightly different in Matthew, and what we say sort of draws them together. Um, so for any of those that, that, uh, that makes you nervous, I want you not to be anxious. Don't be anxious about that. That's okay. We knew that these were different when we printed this out this morning. And we aren't saying it wrong. We're not getting it wrong. We see, even by these differences between Luke and Matthew, that the point of this teaching isn't that um, God is giving you rote words. It's not that you have to pray these exact words, but that, uh, like, word for word, or you get it wrong. Although that's okay, and we do that, and we teach our children that. But that this is a model, this is a pattern of prayer that teaches us how to continue to pray in all different kinds of ways. So let's look at this pattern together briefly. It'll be really brief. So Father, and this could be a sermon in itself, just that one word. But Jesus tells us to call God Father, one who loves us, one who longs to, for us to know him and to know us. This is this word of intimacy and authority together. And for some of this, I know this is hard because you have disrupted relationships with your father. And there's work, there's prayer work even to be done. Um, and maybe healing this morning to ask for, for prayer on that. But I want to say that um, your father doesn't define God, but God defines the grammar of fatherhood. That when you dream of what a father is to be, when you know kind of intuitively in your heart what you long for, that is what father means. To the extent that fathers don't live up to that, it is, it is their failure to be the father. And I say this as a mom who fails all the time, so don't, I'm not too hard on you dads. But uh, it is God that defines that grammar. All right. Hallowed be thy name. He's asking for God's worship. This is the adoration that Quadrant One did so well the other day. It's a way of setting, um, asking God, hallowed is, is, would you be set apart? Would you be exalted? And name is not just the name, but the name that in that time period meant character. Would your character, would your traits, would the essence of you be lifted up? is what that's asking. That, thy kingdom come. It's asking for God's reign. It's asking for God's way. And don't we want that this morning? It's been a hard few weeks in the news for our country, whichever side you're on. Isn't there something longing for you and just welling up in you that says, Lord, thy kingdom come. When we see sin in the world, when we see brokenness around us in our hearts, we want, we long for the rule and reign of God. And I have come more, the older I get, to think that sometimes, often, prayer is simply longing before God with God. Longing for what? For his kingdom to come, for things to be made right. Give us this day our daily bread. Every day we are needy. Every day we need daily bread. I mean, like, very literally, we need food every day. And we can continue to ask for provision of his needs. It's okay 
to ask God for what you want and for what you need. It is not unspiritual. It's not embarrassing. Some of you may treat God like Santa Claus and mainly want, you know, mainly come to God to ask God for what you want. But some of you not wanting to do that may be really scared to tell God what you need. And I, I just want to challenge you to maybe ask God for something frivolous, something that you can do without. I have a friend, Renee, who one of the most, um, she was deeply struggling with the love of God. And she asked God for, um, it was a really hard day, and she said, I'd really like some chocolate ice cream. And someone walked into her office and said, I brought ice cream. <laughs> and it was, it was this little thing. So I'm not saying the chief end of prayer is to go around and asking God for chocolate ice cream, but I am saying if there's a part of you that's embarrassed to ask God for what you want and need, take a risk and ask God who loves you for what you want and need. All right. Forgive us our sins. And this time it says, for we ourselves forgive those who sin against us. It's, it's not an as contingent clause here. It's forgive us our sins. We also are forgiving sins. This doesn't mean, as, as some have said, that there's kind of some forgiveness meter and God is kind of looking at it and only forgiving to the extent that you forgive. Um, because forgiveness is a process. When I uh, see people for confession, there's a time where we, um, we forgive those who have sinned against them. And what I ask people is, would you just take the next step of forgiveness? Would you just take one more step towards forgiveness? But it does mean that if we, if we receive God's forgiveness, if you really know and believe that God has forgiven you, and if you receive that, you will extend that forgiveness. You will not withhold grace from those around you. If we refuse to forgive others, I really believe this, if you refuse to forgive others, you are callousing your own heart. You're refusing to believe God's abundant, unending forgiveness of you. Or you don't think you have much to be forgiven for. If you know that you are a, de are a, a sinner, and you know that you are deeply forgiven, you will not refuse forgiveness to another. Christians are those who forgive, period. It is our defining ethos. We are those who forgive, who love our enemies. All right. And lead us not to temptation. This acknowledges that we are so needy, not just physically, not just for chocolate ice cream, but spiritually. We need God to keep us from temptation that is too great for us, that would break us. And we see this constantly in the Psalms, God praying, keep our feet from stumbling. Sin destroys us. It's not interesting. It's very boring. It's old, and it enslaves us. It empties us out, and we are praying that God would keep us from this kind of destruction, this kind of numbing. And then, right there, without a beat, it ends. The, the, his, he, this pattern of prayer ends, and Jesus launches into these weird stories that are super weird. So if you thought they were weird, that's good. That's the right exegetical thought. Um, I want to suggest uh, that this story 
and that the one, the, this first story and that the one after it reveals not just the pattern of prayer, a model of prayer, but the heart of prayer. This gets to the heart of the matter. The heart of prayer that we are examining today, and I also grew up Southern Baptist, though I didn't know Jonathan at the time, and I was a good Southern Baptist kid, and he was a terrible Southern Baptist kid, but, um, <laughs> but, uh, but I, 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 honest to goodness, though I grew up in the Baptist, have never done a sermon with uh, a three-point alliteration, but here we go. Um, the heart of prayer that we are examining today is, one, desperation, two, delight, and three, discipleship. And I did not mean to make those all Ds, but those were the words that came, so there we go. Des- desperation, delight, and discipleship. So first story, it's about a guy who asks his neighbor for help. And what does this have to do with the prayer that we just prayed? So something to know about this passage is that in the ancient world, when, when Jesus was saying this, that hospitality was a huge deal, that it was literally the law, and that a failure of hospitality wasn't just something that would be kind of embarrassing or like get you, you know, like a bad Yelp review or something. <laughs> But that um, it was culturally completely unacceptable. It was humiliating to not be able to extend hospitality. Part of what was devastating about being the poorest of the poor is that it rendered you unable to extend hospitality. This was absolutely part of understanding of dignity at the time. And then um, last minute, this guy, this guy shows up to his friend's house, and his friend doesn't have anything to give him. And this is, uh, again, this this would have been a panic at the time. Uh, Jonathan and I have something we call the neighborly pop-in, which is when literally neighbors just just knock on your door. It's almost never done in our culture, but we love it because we hate planning and we love people. So when people just show up, it's great. Sometimes, one in 10 times we hate it, but most of the time we love it. And, um, And we've had some of you have come. One person showed up, knocked on our door with a bottle of bourbon. We let them right in, and we had a great time. (laughs) So uh, we love the neighborly pop-in, but sometimes, uh, one time, a few years ago, our friends Stephen and Bethany, who lived kind of far away, and they, they came in, and they called us and said, we're here. And so, of course, I said, come over for dinner. We, we want you to come. We want to see you. But the second I hung up the phone, it was like bedlam in our house. It was like the house was crazy. There were kids everywhere. Like, we need to pick everything up. Is the toilet flush? Do we even have toilet paper? Do we have anything to feed these people? It was just this sort of panic. And if, if I felt that with dear friends who would not have judged us, but who live in a trailer and work among the homeless, so it would have been fine. If I felt that in that situation, how much more if this was culturally imperative, if this was the law of the land, if, I, if, if showing hospitality was absolutely a part of my understanding of my own dignity. So this person who was knocking on his friend's door in the middle of the night would have felt a sense of desperation. He was deeply needy for his friend to show up and to help him. This wasn't like, all right, like if you can do it, like whatever, but if you can't, it's no big deal. Like no pressure, but I kind of need something, but whatever. He was banging on the door in desperation. 
this was, his friend was his only hope. There wasn't a giant eagle or a giant eagle down the street that he could get something. There wasn't a, um, a place he could sort of run into like a quick mart and pick something up. He needed help from his friend. So he went to his neighbors and we get the implication um, of the, the, the implication of the story, everybody listening would have, would have known, of course his neighbor would help him in this situation. When Jesus says, would, wouldn't a neighbor help him in this situation? The listeners would have been like, of course, in that situation. It was a given. So likely what's happening is this man is lying asleep with his kids. That's how families would sleep together in um, the ancient Near East. And so he's lying, he's lying asleep with his kids kind of sleeping all around him. And if he got up and unlatched the door, it would wake the kids. And I, as a mom of young kids, and probably all mothers and fathers, can understand that this friend would have felt panicky and desperate on his own right. He was like, please do not wake up my kids. Like, my kids, are, they're gathered around him. They're knocking, and this guy's like, don't wake up the children. Like, who knows how long it took them to go to sleep, right? And so, um, but even if he wasn't motivated out of love for his neighbor, he still would get up because he saw the desperation of his neighbor because his neighbor kept calling. The man was desperate not to wake up his kids, but he sees his neighbor as more desperate. And Jesus says, even if he won't come out of friendship, he will respond because of persistence, because of desperation. So this is my first point about the heart of prayer. We come to God desperate. We need to know this. We need to know this desperation. We need to know that we need him, that we need him, and that we cannot get to know him on our own, that we need him to respond. Jonathan mentioned this the other night, call out to God in our desperation. The psalmist, you hear this, right? As the deer pants for water, so my soul pants for you. It's this deep, physical desperation, this longing. What will drive our persistence in prayer, what will keep you coming to Jesus, is not checking it off your list. The thing that will drive you is the same thing that drives you to food and water. It's your hunger and it's your thirst. And maybe this morning, one of the things you can, the prayers you can bring is make me hungry and make me thirsty. We must know that we need this. We must know that we need Jesus to pray. So there's a humility in this. There's a humiliation. This man had to acknowledge his need. He had to acknowledge his desperation. If he was trying to get a, keep it all together, if he was trying to save face, he would not have knocked on his friend's door in the middle of the night. We have to be humble enough to know our own deficiency. But if we just stopped there, what a sad place that would be that we know that we need Jesus, and we're kind of hoping that if we're persistent enough, he'll respond. But that is not what this is about. So, 
just in case you think this story is uh, about Jesus sort of being annoyed and begrudgingly answering prayer. Uh, he, Jesus tells another story. And this tells us something else about the heart of God, about the heart of prayer. So um, first to tell you, I'll tell you, we have this thing in our family we call yes, not yes. And I do not recommend it as a communication pattern. But it's when you really want to say no. Uh, okay, let's take my kids. I really want to say no to whatever they're asking, but they ask and they ask and they ask and they ask, and so eventually I go, yes, fine. So everything about my body language and my uh, tone is saying no, but my words are saying yes. This is also if Jonathan like wants to go out with some friends and I really want him to be home, I'll be like, yes, you can go, which means don't go, right? That's what that means. So this is horrible communication. We've banned yes, not yes from our house. If you're going to say yes, say yes. Joyfully, if you're going to say no, say no. So this story could read like a yes, not yes from God. Like Jesus is, really doesn't want to give you what you need, doesn't want to respond to your desperate, desperate need. But that because you're persistent, he's kind of like, oh, good night. If you leave me alone, I will give you what you want. That is not the heart of Jesus in this. Uh, because children are persistent does not mean that we love them well. But God is the perfect parent. He's the perfect mother and father, and he loves us perfectly. He does not say yes, not yes. This goes back to what Andrea was saying about this. Is, this story is a story of contrast, not comparison. Jesus is saying, this friend was like this, but I'm a better friend. I'm a perfect friend. God delights in you. He delights in you. So the second, the second heart of prayer is delight, receiving God's delight in you. All right. I need to move on. So he says, is there anyone who among you, if, you're, if, you, uh, if your child asks for a fish, will give him a snake? Or if your child asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? God wants to give good gifts to you. My father never cried. He was not a crier. Really, I, I don't think I... I think I saw him cry twice. He was this big Texan man. But he grew up really poor, really, really poor. And one year, it was, the, it was like right around the time that laptops came out, my, I really needed a laptop. I needed a computer. Uh, and my sister, who's also a professional writer, really needed a computer. She was like working on this like word processor from like the 80s before that, I don't know. It was like an ancient specimen. And so one Christmas, it was the last gift, he had us open it up at the same time. And, um, and we opened it up and it, it, was, it was two laptops. And this was something he could have never imagined um, being able to give his kids. I mean, he didn't know it existed, but even this kind of provision. As my father as a young kid began to dream of trying to make um, things a little better for his kids, for his daughters. So, um, so we opened this up, and I just looked at my, we were like, we freaked out. We were like, oh my gosh, you know, one of those like Christmases that you only see on commercials. And, um, 
And I looked up and my dad, just tears were running down his eyes. And um, he wiped him away before I could, because he didn't want anyone to see, because he's a Texas guy. But why, why did he do that? It's because he, he delighted in his kids. He wanted to give us good gifts and he was able to. And that is the heart of prayer. That is what you're called into. But lastly, I want you to pay attention to the last few minutes we have. What gift does God give in this passage? What gift does he give? The Holy Spirit. Yeah, Andrea talked about this last night. He gives us the Holy Spirit. He gives us, he provides for our needs, yes, but ultimately what God gives us is himself. And he does not say yes, not yes to that. He gives us himself in delight. All the promises of God are yes in Christ. Just yes. So he gives us the Holy Spirit. This is not, as Andrea mentioned, a second baptism or something that's kind of scary. No, it's that we can know God that walking in the Spirit, we can come to intimacy and to repentance. And so this brings us full circle back to discipleship. What is discipleship? It's to know God. It is good to ask God for what we want. It is good to ask God for healing. But ultimately, what we need and what we ask for from God is God himself. And we can be so confident that he will answer that prayer, that he will say yes. Jesus teaches us this model of prayer so that we can pray out of a place of desperation to a father who delights in us and wants to respond to our prayer and who gives us the gift of discipleship, of knowing him. Ultimately, he gives us the gift of himself and that is eternal life. That is what we're practicing together this weekend. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.